Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. It's been 15 days since the University of Idaho made a blockbuster announcement. The state's land-grant institution plans to acquire the University of Phoenix, an online and, for now, for-profit institution that serves 85,000 students across the country. The purchase price is also staggering. To acquire the University of Phoenix, a nonprofit entity affiliated with the University of Idaho will need to take out $685 million of bonds to execute this purchase. To get a better sense of this transaction, how we got here, where we're going, and the nitty-gritty details of this deal, I had a chance to sit down on Thursday with Scott Green, the president of the University of Idaho. Here's our interview. Well, President Green, thank you for taking the time to to join us this week. I, I have a lot of detailed questions about this purchase that, that I want to get to, but I, I want to start with something more open-ended. As I read your guest opinion this week, you talked about how there's been a lot of misinformation about this purchase and that you expect more of that as this becomes uh, more politicized. Why don't we start there? What are people not understanding about this uh, about this transaction? What are the biggest misperceptions? Yeah, well, yeah, I think it's it's helpful to even back up a little bit further. But okay. um, so, but you know, I will answer your question and and any of the others that, that you have. But let me just start by saying that you know, uh, my University of Idaho education has been uh, one of the best things that's happened to me in my life. Um, uh, it, it, it enabled me to have a successful career, um, and you know. And again, you know, I, I, we we can get into details of a very complicated transaction, but I think you know, our, our you know, we should spend some time discussing, you know, the benefits uh, uh, to higher education in Idaho, and most importantly, uh, the benefits to our students. And and you know, higher education, frankly, is changing around us as we speak. Um, uh, if we think the competition competition for students right now is difficult, uh, you know, I, I would say let's just just wait a couple of years, and and it's going to feel a lot different. Um, and frankly, the Great Recession, um, you know, put families at risk, and and because of that, they they uh, had fewer children, and that's just a fact, and it's coming. That, that enrollment cliff in twenty twenty five or thereabouts. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, you know, we talk about it, but it's amazing how many people still are unaware of it. Um, so, you know, that combined with the pandemic and some of the issues we've had with go on rates coming out of that, um, they're resulting in an, in an enrollment cliff that's, cliff that's dramatic enough that, frankly, in my opinion, um, not all institutions in this country will survive, you know, and, and uh, you know, any president not taking this seriously truly is failing their institution, which I think was also mentioned in, in the article. You know, we benefit greatly from and appreciate the funding we get from the state each year. And this is another thing I mentioned, but there's a lot of calls on that money. And each year, you know, and, and it's true with the other institutions as well, we get farther behind as the cost of doing business, business increase. Um, and, you know, we're having trouble just keeping up with with demand right now from from industry. You know, the supply is dwindling and uh, de the demand from industry is, is increasing. So uh, if we're going to build innovative programs, if we're going to be able to pivot and produce the graduates for the jobs that aren't even created yet, we may not even know what those are, um, you know, because they may not even exist at this point. We need to infuse a new way of thinking really um, around our universities. And for me, that is what this affiliation with the University of Phoenix is, is truly all about. You know, we've heard repeatedly from our legislators to be more innovative, more businesslike, produce more pathways for our rural students, and 
uh, train our students for in-demand jobs. And again, you know, this transaction does that. And it helps us get to place some time-based, uh, time-bound students, um, which we know is a big problem in Idaho. It meets their needs. It's not forcing them to conform to a traditional delivery of education model. So from my perspective, we, it helps us become more flexible, agile, provides more choice to our students. But it, and and it feels, oh, I'm sorry. Well, I just I just finally say that, you know, uh, that, you know, the systems of the University of Phoenix has to deliver to adult learners to also a second to none. And for me, one of the most important things that we're going to be getting out of this is access to that technology. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, firms, uh, you know, folks would probably look at their systems and see that that PI has a lot of value, um, you know, all by itself. Um, you know, but uh, and it'll provide a, a mechanism for both the state and, and ourselves to to reach those students. Um, you know, efficiently, effectively, and intuitively. I mean, these systems are terrific. They're they're the best out there. So in my in my mind, we just have a duty to educate our students, bolster our industry, um, lead our economy, and in, in innovation. And again, uh, this transaction does that. It feels like a lot of the the factors here that make this innovative in your view i think are the same factors that maybe take people aback about it because the u of i and the university of phoenix are are such different institutions i mean you're a land-grant university you're more residentially oriented in moscow serving mostly 18 to 22 year old students and i know that there are fewer of them coming through the pipeline i think people look at u of i and they look at university of phoenix and they see two very different institutions and maybe you're having a hard time seeing how the two of them commingle well, yeah, and I think a lot of people, that's, that's their default. Um, but I think most people actually see see the opposite. They see that they're complementary. You know, uh, they're very different markets, right? So as this enrollment cliff comes, you know, for, um, for uh, traditional students coming out of high school, uh, you know, the, uh, the adult learner population is actually going to increase by 5% over that period. So it's a growing market. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, you know, it complements very well uh, what we're doing. It provides a different revenue source. Also, we've looked at the programs and there's not that much overlap. There's a little bit, but their programs are very complementary. So we believe we can even leverage that with new pathways into the University of Idaho. They've got 85,000 students. If we can only, if, if we're able to um, get even a couple thousand of those students to move on uh, to the University of Idaho over time, whether it be someone who's gotten an associate's degree there who decides they, they wanna spend some time on, on a campus experience and get a bachelor's or one of the, some of their PhD candidates who wanna work in real labs, they don't, they don't have those, you know, we have that. And uh, so we see a lot of opportunity here where other people see differences, we see synergy um, and, and, you know, frankly, an ability to compete at a different level. I know you've taken pains to say that this isn't unprecedented, that other universities have partnered with with online schools. And you've brought up Purdue University and, and Kaplan. But one of the big differences between the Purdue Kaplan purchase and, and this purchase is the price. I mean, you know, Purdue acquired Kaplan for a dollar. This is going to cost uh, the Phoenix purchase is going to cost 550 million minus the 200 million that Phoenix has taken off of the top. That's a big gap in in, in dollars. I think people look at 550 million or 350 million, and there's a certain level of sticker shock going on here. 
Yeah, I think they're very different institute, you know, organizations. And plus, there's a difference in how they're being operated. As you know, you know, well, I don't know if you know, but uh, you know, Purdue. And I don't know all the ins and outs of, of that transaction, but um, you know, their initial owners are still involved, which is, you know, you know, which is some of the problems that. Uh, the Department of Education has with some of these combinations. Ours is a clean break. We're buying everything. We're taking it all. It's an asset purchase. Um, so to compare the two just makes no sense. Uh, zero sense. And the yeah. clean break, the, the complete purchase is factored into the, the purchase price I'm gathering. Of course. Yeah, of course. We're not sharing, you know, profits aren't going back to, you know, the investors. We're not paying, you know, former owners for, you know, operating any parts of our unit. Uh, it's going to be a clean break, and and the profits that and taxes that used to be paid by the University of Phoenix can now be redirected back into student success. So we're, you know, this is a completely different animal, and and so to compare the two, you know, you know what I think you can look at is is what these other universities, what having those online operations have been able has has how it's helped them, and uh, and I think particularly looking forward, how it will help us, um, you know, again, providing all those benefits that we've talked about. Can you talk a little bit and walk through the, the revenue stream for the university, the $10 million or more that, that you're projecting per year coming in? How do you get there and how will that money be used? Yeah, so basically um, the way the deal is structured is that the University of Idaho will receive $10 million every year before principal and interest is paid on on any of the, the bonds, uh, you know, of the assets, of, you know, against the University of Phoenix. And, uh, you know, frankly, for the first year, that will probably be used, you know, to help us defray some of the expenses we've had with the transaction and to, you know, provide some benefits, you uh, to um, utilizing their systems, um, you know, trying to get them, you know, to uh, reiterate those systems so we can use them at the University of Idaho, possibly even the state board for online Idaho, that that will be up to them, but we've made it, you know, we will certainly make it available to them. So, you know, I think that's how that money would be used up, up, up front. And so beyond that 10 million, of course, we will have a share of the of the uh, surplus at, at, uh, that's generated each year as well. And, and again, we see the similar uses for that money. Uh, initially in particular, just reinvesting uh, into their platform so that we can take advantage of it at the University of Idaho. But longer term, obviously that money's available to use for all sorts of initiatives that uh, we could, uh, there's been, you know, I, I, one of the things I'd like to do is is start setting up a found, you know, uh, you know, uh, scholarships like we do for all Idaho students here uh, within our foundation that so that th those are available to University of Phoenix students as well if they reside in the state of Idaho. Um, and we can use that money for, uh, you know, creating pathways as well, programs, new programs with pathways between the University of Phoenix and, and the University of Idaho or, or vice versa. So. There's just, there's a lot of opportunity here. The faculty are coming up with new opportunities every day. Our biggest issue will be, you know, trying to prioritize them all, you know, and, and, and take advantage of them. And let's talk a little bit about the flip side and the university's financial commitment here. The $10 million that the university might need to backstop, where does that money come from? I'm, I'm having a hard time reconciling that backstopping component of this with the statements that there's no taxpayer risk here. So explain. Well, there is no taxpayer risk because New U is a separate um, legal entity and they're the ones issuing the bonds, not us. And there's no recourse other than the $10 million I just, uh, that, that you just mentioned. And 
the, what people, you know, anyone who's, who's been in business can look at this. And, and in my experience, they, they would, they would agree that the risk of that ever uh, coming to, uh, to fruition is pretty remote um, that we'd have to do that. But what it does help us do is get a better rate on our bonds when we go sell them. So basically the University of Phoenix, which is generating, you know, over $150 million of EBITDA every year and, and over $100 million of free cash flow would have to go out of business. And they'd have to run through their litigation reserve, that the, uh, not the litigation, the debt reserve that they've set up. Um, and, and that's, I think it's gonna be some $60 million. Uh, so the chances that the University of Idaho would ever, ever have to pay out on this is, is, is really remote. Having said that, if we did, I wouldn't like it, but we can do it. And where would the money come from within the university? Well, it, it would come from our reserves, and it, and it comes from auxiliary operations and and everything else. I mean, you've seen our financials. We we generate quite a bit of cash these last few years, and and so we would have no problem, you know, uh, doing that. And we wouldn't have to go to the legislature to do it, um, and we wouldn't have to ask the tax taxpayers to do it. Okay. So. Um, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, in an organization that, that's a $400 million a year organization, which is the University of Idaho right now, um, and it'll be, be bigger by then, $10 million we can, we can handle. I don't, wouldn't like it, wouldn't be comfortable, but we could do it. Um, and, and we wouldn't have a call on the taxpayers. Um, yeah, that was key in, in how we set this up, is, is I, did never, I never want to have to ask the state to step in because they already do a lot for us. And there's no reason they should have to carry the ball on this one. In the state board meeting a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned credit rating. Uh, there was uh, there was a question about whether this is going to affect the University of Idaho's credit rating and perhaps uh, cause a downgrade. How likely is that, and what impact would that have on university operations? I, I really don't know how likely it is. Um, it's a possibility, is the way it's been presented to me. Um, you know, we are not issuing the debt. The debt is on on uh, the University of Phoenix. It, it's secured by their assets, not ours. There's no call on our assets other than the, the guarantee we just talked about. Um, so, you know, uh, in you know, from an accounting point of view, you look at this and say, well, there's there's no reason to um, you know to downgrade us at all. But you know, rating services tend to be conservative, and they may choose to look through. And we've analyzed, okay, well, what if they did look through? and looked at this and what would that do? And and what they come back with, I think is pretty good news. It was that, yeah, we could experience a, a, a you know, one notch down rating, but it's still investment grade and, you know, would, you know, cost us, you know, unless we go out to the market, it won't cost us anything, but we have to go out to the market and raise money. It may cost us a little bit in, you know, a little higher interest rate, but nothing significant being since it's still investment grade. And since the university is still in a very, very good, you know, financial position, so. Um, you know, uh, again, um, I, I don't know the probability. Um, I, I don't know if it's remote or likely. Um, all I said, all they told us is, look, it's possible, and we did the work to look at it. And if they chose to do that, here, here's what we think the result would be. So it might drive up the cost of financing other projects, but not to a large degree. Exactly. I, you know, I mean, usually it's just a few basis points between, you know, one step in, in when you're talking about investment grade bonds. Let's talk a little bit about the governance and the, the separate entity, the new U entity. How does that work constitutionally? That, that's a question that's come up in the past couple of weeks. Uh, this entity is going to be doing the bonding. Do they have the authority under the state constitution to do bonding, to, to basically, you know, 
use the state's uh, full faith and credit. Yeah, yeah, I know that's been asked. It's actually a question that, that we asked early on, um, and, and we're getting it documented as well, and, and you know, we'll, we'll make excerpts of, of that opinion available. Holly Troxel's done the work on that. And early on, because, you know, we, we, you know, I asked him, listen, if there's not a path here, why are we doing this? So they came back and, and said, yes, there is a path. And, and we are, um, uh, you know, we do have the authority to do this. And in fact, you know, uh, you know, as a constitutional entity, have pretty broad authorities, um, but we cannot bind the state. So again, as long as we're issuing bonds for the University of Idaho, or in this case, for the University of Phoenix, uh, the state board of you know the, the 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 regents of the University of Idaho are are empowered to do this. So um, I think that's there's also case law out there that makes that pretty clear. Um, Idaho case law. So um, they they assured me we were on a good path. It was a doable path. Um, and now I've asked them to actually document all that for us so that uh, you know they can share those those opinions with everybody else. But in my view, it's a red flag. You know um, that. Uh, uh, a, a false one, you know, red herring, I think is a better term actually, because, uh, um, you know, this is already pretty much settled case law, but, uh, the fact that some people have raised it, we're also prepared to defend it if we need to. And how do these two entities coexist or, or co-mingle? Because the board members who knew you, it looks like it's going to be at least at the outset, top university of Idaho administrators serving on that board. So how separate are these entities? Well, I think that's an assumption that's wrong. Um, you know, I think the board of uh, of uh, the the new entity that we set up will have to have a a, a majority of, of independent directors. I, I think that most most do, um, and and I think that might be a requirement. You know, for the Department of Education to see this truly as a as, as a not for profit. Um, so, uh, you know, there, there probably will be some representation um, from the university on there, probably some from the regents, but, you know, the majority of the board ought to be independent. Um, the relationship there, you know, is one of affiliation and it's one of our desire to work together and, and build programs together. They, they're also very excited about this. They see the opportunity to kind of use Idaho as a test bed. You know, we can create new programs here and see how they fly. and and create a new model for the nation possibly. Um, so we're pretty excited about what, what we can do together and developing those pathways. And and frankly, you know, I think the you know the students in the University of, of Idaho and, and really the students throughout the state are gonna be the huge beneficiaries of this. They're gonna have another choice and they're gonna have, you know, things that are happening but you know with our organizations that aren't available elsewhere um, as as we, we work on some of these new projects that you know, to provide new opportunities to our students. So um, very exciting times, more to come on that. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, again, um, you know, it's one of the reasons we're excited about, about getting into this, uh, this affiliation. And are these new choices for students, are they at all, do they at all duplicate what you're already doing in terms of your own online programs, in terms of the online Idaho portal that uh, is being set up? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Kevin. And it's actually, you know, if Tori were on, you know, he, our provost, he, he'd be better at answering this because he actually did the work on that. He looked at all the programs. And, and again, I think I mentioned earlier, there's a little bit of overlap, but by and largely it's complementary to what we have at the university and actually in um, Idaho Online at this point. Um, and, and part of that might be just because it's a different market, it's adult learners, is their general market. but. You know, um, again, I, these classes, you know, once we have them, you know, uh, you know, the entire platform and it had the fact that we've had a chance to assess all of them 
know, there's an opportunity for our students to take advantage of that. Um, I don't know about, about you, but you know, my experience with my children was when they were on campus, their campuses, uh, they were very used to taking online classes that if they didn't have that class available that semester. And that's kind of new for me. And it was, I think it's pretty new for the University of Idaho. But for many institutions, that's the norm now. And students are very comfortable with it. Um, and, and we'll take those classes so they don't have to come back for an extra semester. So, And a lot of students um, got an education in online, uh, whether they wanted it or not, over the past three years. Indeed. Indeed. So, uh, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. So, you know, it just seems like they're, they're used to it uh, at this point. And don't even think twice about it. Where for me, it's like, well, I'm a parent. And, you know, I, I know the value of, of in-person education. And... Uh, uh, you know, I'd like, you know, is this really the right right way to do this? But if you're saving a semester, you know, if you're able to, to cut a semester off that you'd have to take otherwise, then I would say, yeah, probably makes a lot of sense. So, Does it affect students, U of I students in any other way? Does it in any way jeopardize their ability to uh, get federal financial aid? Oh, no. I mean, there's, there's absolutely no overlap there. Again, you know, the University of Phoenix will have to do their own PPA and, and we will as well. Um, and so it, it won't affect them at all. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, um, there are other benefits, you know, and, and I'd go back to their systems, which I, I know is not, you know, something a lot of people like to talk about because it, it, it's more complicated, but University of Phoenix has some of the best persistent systems we've seen. Um, so, you know, the, you know their, their population, you know, the four-year and six-year graduation rates don't make a lot of sense to them, you know, for them because they have, you know, these students that take a couple classes at a mm-hmm. time because they're working or they're in the military. Um, uh, but what they do is they have systems that alert them when when uh, when the um, those students start to get off track. Either they're taking the wrong classes or they're not doing well in their classes or they stopped applying for the classes. So they have some really nice systems that help give them early alerts on their, that I think we can use on our campus. Kind of a retention uh, recapture kind of Exactly, uh, exactly. And, and so I'm, I'm, I was excited about that as I am about the, you know, the portal, you know, which is also very intuitive and, and great technology. And, and again, user friendly for their, their 85,000 students. But to me, the persistence systems could be even more powerful. Can you walk through the accreditation process for, for U of I? And I know there's a separate track that University of Phoenix is going to have to pursue with its accreditors. Talk through how how this is going to work with your accreditors. Yeah, so uh, again, Tori's the provost, and, and this is kind of outside my, my area, and, and, and we also have a, a, a subject matter expert who works with Tori on, on this. But um, from what I understand is we'll, we'll make an application to them, similar to what we've done uh, with HLC, uh, pro- probably the exact same documentation, um, just to let them know that you know we're, we are entering into what they consider a, a substantial uh, change. Um, it's it's different than HLC in that we're not getting acquired, um, but you know it, it's it's a big enough transaction that uh, we wanted them to know about it and have them have the opportunity to weigh in. Um, so. Uh, we've been in contact with them. Um, we will make those submissions to them as well and, um, you know, and, and have that discussion with them and, and hopefully receive their approval to, to move forward as well. Do you have any sense from the accreditors yet or is it too early to, to really know how they might view this? Yeah, well, we do know that the um, uh, HLC, which is Phoenix's accreditors and very good accreditors. And by the way, they just got their accreditation renewed for 10 years. So, you know, the quality of their programs is, is, uh, is, is pretty, pretty good. Um, cause they are a tough, tough accreditation, uh, team. 
but um, uh, they meet again in November. So the, the, that's why we were working really hard to get all this in by the 19th and, and get any other supplementals that they wanted by uh, this, the end of this month, um, uh, just so that they, they would have all the data that they need by November to make a decision on this. Um, so I assume that in between there's gonna be conversations, but again, um, that's kind of falls on the University of Phoenix and, and, um, and the work with their accreditors. And a lot of Idahoans have spent the past couple of weeks trying to understand this and, and understand where it came from. I mean, for you, this process began roughly in in March with, you know, the first approach from University of Phoenix. At what point did this start to gel in your mind is this is something that you feel like this university needs to pursue? Um, it's a great question. And honestly, the last few weeks are just a blur. I mean, we were working 24 by seven to, to try to get through the due diligence and everything. But I, I think the, I think the, um, it, it really kind of gelled when we recognized that, uh, first of all, uh, how much free cash flow um, this organization was throwing off, the quality of their systems, um, uh, the our ability to finance this, uh, you know, and, and some of the opinions we received from from Holly Troxel, um, and the results of our due diligence on on their financial statements, as that kind of all came together, um, you know, we just saw the opportunity. And then it's a question of, well, you know, can we can we address um, you know all of our concerns through purchase price? I mean, that's what it's all about at the end of the day, and. Um, uh, you know, we had a, we had a few tough negotiation sessions with with the seller, but at the end of the day, they understood where we were coming from. Um, I think that they're interested in in um, uh, selling uh, this asset. It's the last asset in their fund, as you know. Private equity funds have a terminal terminal day, um, and so they they are interested. In, and I think that they recognize that you know the University of Idaho that we could understand this transaction. It's complex, but we could understand it and get it to completion and. Um, and uh, so that they could, you know, return money to their shareholders. Um, and at the end of the day, we end up with a, a world-class asset. They've done a lot of great work on this. Um, you know, they've, they've sold off their international operations. They've, they've closed down their in-person, um, you know, uh, locations across the country. Uh, they've, uh, you know, so they, what, what's left is this core online um, uh, business that is growing. And uh, their their enrollments are are up just this year already four point seven percent this fiscal year. So um, it's it's a very very strong business is what they're left with. Even if the financials look good and the the, the portal the infrastructure that you're getting from the University of Phoenix looks good, there's still that name and there's still that reputational issue. And you've acknowledged this. Uh, how do you go about? rebranding uh, this asset? I, I know it'll be renamed, but how do you rebrand it and how do you, uh, you know, yeah, how you do you know, get over it's that? A good, it's a good and fair question. It, it really is. And it's one we, we, we've talked about a lot internally. <clears throat> Probably the most important thing for us is we did meet with our management team. And it's a different management team than the one that, that you know, created all the issues for them where they had their, their big payout a few years ago. But, um, and, and importantly, you know, in meeting with them, you know, not once did they ever uh, bring up 
you know, the, themselves. Not once do they say, well, are you going to hire all of this? Or are you going to, you know, how are you going to replace our equity contracts since you're going to be, we're going to be a, a you know, a, a, a public, a not-for-profit. Um, you know, we spent all the time talking about their students. And, and I have to say, we all came away really impressed with that because, you know, they are really focused on first gen. I think theirs is much higher than ours. Ours is, our class last year is 52%, one of the highest in years. And I think theirs is 80 uh, they, they've got a, um, you know, adult learners, you know, we, we, we very different than ours. Um, and they, because of that, these adult learners need skills that, that, um, industry recognizes. So they've got a process we've only started, but they, they're already well down the hill that they develop their programs based on skills that industry's looking for and then work backwards. And so if you get a certificate from them or a degree from them, you know, they can demonstrate those skill sets and, and, uh, it's just it was just very impressive so so first of all you know i just think it's a different team um i i think that the the decisions made in the past were poor business decisions it doesn't mean that they've got bad technology or bad programs they've got terrific programs um you know and we think we can help them with that you know um, by becoming a a not-for-profit and reinvesting back into into students rather than you know having to worry about investors um, you know, I think a lot of these issues go away. Um, it's, it's, you know, the government really does not like private education institutions. And frankly, I get, I get it. You know, um, you know, some don't operate very, very ethically, but this management team I think is different. And I think they want to do the best for their students and I think we can help them. So that's where we ended up on that. And, you know, it's a fair question, but, you know, we think that, uh, uh, by, by doing this conversion and affiliating with them, a lot of these issues for them are going to go away. It sounds a little bit for you as a university president with a business background, you probably had to kind of use two sides of your brain on this to look at the educational aspect of University of Phoenix versus some of the business decisions from the past. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. I've got a great provost and a great team here so they can they can help me through all that. Um, and, and again, you know, the quality of the programs is really important uh, to, to our, uh, you know, to Tori and others. Uh, what a lot of people did do not know, even on our campus, is the quality of the programs is such. We already, before this, had approved 560 of their classes uh, for use by our students that we would take the, those credits. So, um, yeah, that kind of demonstrates that you know the public perception is very different than than you know what they're able to actually deliver to their students. President Green, I know your time's limited, and I appreciate you making some time to answer some questions about this. I'm sure we'll have more as uh, as this process unfolds. But for today, thank you for taking the time. No, I, I deeply appreciate the time, Kevin. And you know, again, it just I appreciate uh, you know allowing us to help set the record straight here. This is this transaction is it, you know I, I understand it, it's very different than than what people looked at, but we are going through disruption in education and. Again, if, if we do not do this, you know, again, I, I would not be doing my job um, because, uh, as I mentioned, this enrollment cliff is going to push a lot of universities to the brink and colleges and many are going to go out of business and they're all going to come to our state to recruit our students because they're going to be desperate. This really helps offset that by, by, you know, bringing into the University of Idaho and the state of Idaho uh, a different cohort, adult learners, a, a group that's growing and can help offset those losses. So. I think we're gonna we're gonna be much stronger coming out of this for having done this. So thank you for letting us tell that story. Thank you again. Again, that was Scott Green, the president of the University of Idaho. 
Follow us at idahoednews.org. We will have all of the latest developments on the University of Idaho's plans to acquire the University of Phoenix. So if you want to stay current, follow us at idahoednews.org. And I'd like to tell you that this is the only complicated financial issue on our plates this week, but that's hardly the case. Carly Flandreau and Darren Svon did an excellent story earlier this week looking at teacher pay raises. As you recall from the uh, 2023 legislative session, lawmakers and Governor Brad Little agreed to provide $6,300 per teacher uh, for teacher pay raises. But as you know, and as we've seen in past years, that doesn't always translate into on-the-ground pay raises. It's really complicated. A lot of factors are at play. Carly and Darren explain those factors, kind of walk you through it. It's, it's really good explanatory journalism, and it's backed up with uh, case studies of what's happening in West Ada, Coeur d'Alene, and Pocatello, Chubbuck. So if you're interested in what's happening with teacher pay raises and you want to get a big picture, that's a great place to start. I took a closer look at what's going to happen with K-12 spending next budget year and how much money is really going to go out to schools, because that obviously factors into some of these teacher salary decisions that are being made. It's complicated, and it goes back to the arcane question of whether we distribute state education dollars based on enrollment or classroom attendance. And we're going back to using attendance as the metric, and that could affect what goes out to schools in terms of funding next year. But the bottom line is it's really unclear exactly how much money is going to go out. I tried to explain that story. That's a story we published on Wednesday. You can find that at idahoednews.org. And it's not all about finances. We've got uh, our ongoing feature, shining a spotlight on Idahoans' favorite teachers. Uh, Sadie Dittenberg is taking the lead on this project. Uh, Really good stories about teachers that are influencing and impacting Idahoans. And we'd like to hear your stories too. So if you have a favorite teacher that you would like us to profile, we'd love to hear from you. Follow us at idahoednews.org on a daily basis, even in the summer, because things are not going to slow down this summer. Follow us for all the latest in education policy and education politics. Follow us on Twitter. We tweet uh, tweet out our links uh, to our latest stories and bulletins on breaking news items. Follow us on Facebook and comment on our stories there. And check back here for my next podcast and check back here as well for Carly's Teacher's Lounge podcast. Until next time, I'm Kevin Richard. Take care.